0: It will be on the Otter Creek website for a long time. All the classes are on the website, by the way. So if you uh, just loved what you've heard, you can just get online and listen to it again. Um, So anyway, so this is the class Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. My name is Stephen Ramsey. I'm one of the three teachers with uh, Jeff and Becca Binney. And we're looking at Jesus in context. And in a truer sense, we're really trying to be more Jewish in the way that we look at the Gospels. Jesus as a Jew in Israel, as a Jewish rabbi, what can we learn from Him and how can we be more like Him? Uh, In that sense, we've been doing the Shema every week, the greatest command. Um, Jews say this every morning when they wake up. They say it every night before they go to bed. They desire for these words to be the last words they'll ever say. And for the Jewish rabbis, this was, when you say this, this is the moment of being reborn, starting over, starting over fresh with God's love being the power that moves through us. So let's stand, let's say this together, and then remain standing and we'll read uh, a few verses together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. All right, let's read these verses together. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish? will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Amen. You may be seated. Um, a few questions to start uh, this class that I hope we can get into uh, with, with the material. Uh, how do you define faith? How does the church define faith? How does Jesus define faith? And how do Jews define faith? So I'm going to, uh, let's take a couple minutes here, throw out a few thoughts or convictions you have about how you define faith or how you've heard it defined around you in the church? The
1: assurance of things hope for, what's
0: the Hope for but not yet seen? Is that, yeah. Mm hmm. Yes? Condition
1: of things not seen.
0: What else? How do you define faith or how have you heard it defined around you? trust
2: sometimes it's easy to contrast it mm-hmm. um, I think faith is um, like a circle um, when, when we have truth it's kind of like oil and water if you see a, a big thing of, of oil in the water you'll notice that if there's another piece it just gravitates toward it and they, they marry and become mm. bigger. And so when we're in truth, um, our faith gets larger. And um, sometimes the contrast is when you see someone in your family or someone that you love that doesn't have faith, uh, they're not growing. They're um, Because they don't have faith to in in God as truth, and so they begin to they, they don't have
0: any coherence. Mhm. Mhm. That's good. anybody else want to throw something out?
3: Confidence in the unseen.
0: Confidence in the unseen. Yes. What you put your hope and confidence in. Mhm. Mhm. As well as trust. Yes. All right. I want to look at. We're going to look at a couple parables today, but I want to look at two big characters of the scripture before we get into the parables that Jesus tells. Let's first look at Noah. So Noah, the, the time he's in, the scene he's in, uh, it's a very uh, uniquely bad time in the world. Man's thoughts are continually set on evil. He never, we, we never think about anything good anymore. It's so bad. And God even says, or the scripture says that God regrets that he made man in the first place. So Noah lives in this scene. And Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his age. Noah walked with God. This is a obviously a very powerful compliment to anyone. This is this kind of compliment, though, is reserved only for Noah. No one else in the Torah uh, gets this kind of compliment. Moses, Isaac, Joshua, and so on. It's only said about Noah. And so God comes to Noah and says, I'm done with this world. I've had it. This is basically what I did with the frozen heat up Chinese meal I bought for work the other day. I heated it up. I ate it. No, nope, I'm going down to buy a sandwich. This is terrible, right? So that's, a, that's basically what God did with the world. So he says, I'm, I'm done with this. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send a flood down to this earth. You build a boat. He gives him very precise measurements for the boat, gives him precise things to do with different animals to bring onto the boat. Do these things, and you and your family will live, and you will be on this, on this boat. Well, it says here that in verse 22, Noah did so just as God commanded him, so he did. A unique thing in Hebrew language compared to ours. If we want to emphasize something, we underline it, we italicize it, we bold it, we put it all caps. In the Hebrew language, they repeat it. That's how they're emphasizing something in their writing. So Noah... Did just what God says. It even says a few verses down after the boat, after he gets all the cargo on, and Noah did so just as the Lord commanded. And then the flood starts. Now, an amazing thing here so the story of Noah goes from Genesis 6 through 9. Chapter 6 and 7 move really fast. And the whole time, if you notice this, Noah does not say, one word the entire time. He's totally silent. God says, I'm tired of the world. I'm going to destroy it. Noah says nothing. Only you and your family will survive. Noah says nothing. The rain starts to come down. The floods start to come up. Noah says nothing the entire time. So the floods are huge. Uh, Noah is on the boat. Chapter six through seven, moving very fast through this setup of the background, talking to Noah, building the boat, the floods coming. And then we come to chapter eight and the story grinds to a halt. It actually, it's amazing. The narrative slows down a lot. So the, the rains have stopped. The water is just sitting there on the earth and the flood start, or the water starts to come down. We know the story, Noah sends out a raven and the raven comes back. He sends out a dove Dove comes back. Sends out a dove. It comes back with an olive branch and then sends out the dove again and doesn't come back. So he keeps testing to see what's going on out here. There are days in between sending out the birds. And then when the dove doesn't come back, it actually says he can look out there and see that the ground is dry. And he stays on the boat. And he waits for God to say, you can come out now. You can can come on out. It's good to go. One rabbi's interpretation here of Noah, though, is if I were in that boat, I would have busted out of it and gotten to work. One rabbi's take is actually he's not that fond of the way Noah handles the whole thing. Because when the world is broken and shattered, there's no time to waste. You get out and you go and you do it. Noah stays silent and he stays in the boat and waits for God Hey, now you can come out. It's good to go. You can already see that it's good to go. Noah actually has a very sad ending to his story, right? We remember that he was was drunk, he shamed himself and his kids, and he actually doesn't speak until the very end when he pronounces blessings and cursings on his children. So Noah doesn't say anything the entire time until the end. A few chapters later, we come to Abraham, uh, you know, who had many sons. And, uh, you know, right arm, left arm, Abraham, right? <laughs> okay, so a few, we're going to fast forward a few chapters ahead to Genesis 18. This is where a lot of stuff happens, and a lot of the stuff in this chapter has implications for the entire Bible. So he's 99 years old. And he's just been circumcised. Sheer pain. I mean, utter pain. And it says he's sitting outside his tent in the heat of the day. And it gets hot in Israel. We've talked about this. It's a hot place. He's 99. He's just been circumcised and he's just sitting in the heat of the day. I mean, just, I, I, just, I can't even imagine how horrible he actually feels. And it says that, the, that God visits him. Here, Now, it gets a little fuzzy here and there's different rabbinic interpretations of the first few verses of this chapter. But God visits Abraham and the rabbis say this is a powerful instance of God visiting the sick and the hurting. And then, so there's different ways of reading this, but it looks, it looks like God is here. He's talking with Abraham who's in pain. And then Abraham sees three strangers in the distance. And it's almost as if Abraham goes, God, hold that thought. And he runs to meet three strangers. Now, remember, he's 99. He's just been circumcised and he runs to meet three strangers. He doesn't even know them. It's actually a very shameful thing to run in this culture even today. I heard, I heard a story about a guy, an older Jewish man. He was asked if he would ever run. And he said, never unless my granddaughter was near a scorpion. So even today, uh, adult Jewish men do not run. It's shameful. It happens just a handful of times in the Bible. You may remember when Elijah has the big duel with the prophets of Baal and he runs ahead of chariots. Uh, the more famous one, of course, is when the prodigal son comes back and he's walking through the village. And he, that's a shameful thing to do, to come back home. And the father takes the shame on himself by running to meet his son who comes back home. So Abraham runs to meet these strangers. He invites them over and says, Please stay, washes their feet. He comes into the tent and tells Sarah... Make three measures or seahs of bread. Now, three measures or seahs is over 60 pounds of bread. You can imagine Sarah goes, for who? I don't know them, but I just invited them over for lunch. Make 60 pounds of bread. I mean, she probably goes, you do it. You know, like that's (laughs) that's a lot of homemade bread. She can't just go to the store and get Sister Schubert, you know. Now, a quick sidebar here. Three measures or seahs of bread. Jesus tells a parable and says, The kingdom of heaven is like leavened, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was leavened. So what is Jesus saying here? Partly he's saying that the kingdom of heaven, when God is near, just like in the story of Abraham and Sarah, when God is near, the kingdom of heaven... Is like being abundantly generous to three strangers. The kingdom of heaven is like Abraham and Sarah in this story. Okay, so they have the they're having a conversation with the three strangers. Is God in the tent with them eating? Is God outside the tent? Not really quite sure here. Different ways of reading it. But then the the scene transitions so. Abraham is walking out with the three strangers and with God. And God says, God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? The Lord said, the outrage of Sodom and Gomorrah, their sin is so great. And it says, Abraham walks out with them. The three strangers walk on and they're heading to Sodom. And Abraham stays back with God. And it says, he steps forward and says to God, to his face, will you sweep away the innocent with the guilty? What if I can find, 50, what if there are 50 innocent people? Will you save the entire city? And he goes in this passionate speech, culminating with, and again, he says this to God's face, shall the judge of the earth not deal justly? That is a, that's unprecedented, a powerful, bold statement to say straight to God's face. Well, of course, they can't find 50. He says, okay, what about 45? Will you save the city if you can find 45 righteous? And he works his way down. Abraham keeps coming back. He's persistent in his effort to try and save this city. In the same way he was generous to three strangers, he's generous to two cities of people that he knows there aren't many righteous in there in the first place. Abraham does. God knows there are no righteous people. And yet he invites Abraham into a conversation about what is going on. So to compare, well, let me first say this. So in this conversation, what it looks like is happening is God is teaching Abraham how to be a father of many nations. And Abraham shows kindness and generosity to everyone. And I think the Bible is trying to teach us that to be a father is to teach a child to question, to challenge, to confront, and to dispute. Now, the, sit- the setup is not much different than Noah, right? God tells Noah what's about to happen. Noah says not one word. Whereas Abraham, who is the father of us here, steps up and challenges God. Genesis 6 says Noah walked with God. And then in Genesis 17, uh, God says to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. There's a rabbinic parable about this on the maturity and the call of Noah and Abraham. The rabbi says it's like a king with two sons. One is a child and one is an adult. And the king says to the child, walk with me. And to a son who is an adult, he says, walk before me. Abraham is the picture of how to be in conversation with God, to live in, live in a dynamic relationship with the Lord. So we come to the parables uh, that we'll look at today. The first one comes from Luke chapter 11. Jesus is talking about prayer, and he says to them, "'Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, "'Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, "'and I have nothing to set before him. "'And the neighbor will answer from within and say, "'Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed.'" I cannot rise and give to you I say to you though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs so we saw it from Abraham and Sarah in this culture generosity there is a premium on generosity it would have shocked listeners that the neighbor who has plenty of bread would, would not have gotten up to give him the bread. And in this culture, the houses are close enough that everybody can hear what this conversation would be like and what is going on. So the listeners of Jesus would have found it shocking and embarrassing that the neighbor wouldn't get up and give him food. Not just a little bit, but an abundance of bread and whatever else is in the pantry to feed the guest. Again, this and this man comes to him and he keeps asking, he keeps asking, he keeps asking, his persistence prevails. Not his friendship, his persistence, his continual pleading for help. There's a partner parable in Luke chapter 18. Then Jesus spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, In this scene, we've got a judge who is the exact opposite of what the judges were called to be in the Hebrew Bible. He does not fear God or man, and widows are especially vulnerable in this society. Easily neglected, they have, widows and orphans were the most vulnerable uh, in that day. She has no power here. She has nothing to go on but her persistence and her tenacity and her boldness to keep coming at the judge. And again, this judge does not care about righteousness, fairness, equality, and justice. And when he says, I will, I will fix this so that she doesn't, um, so that because she's wearying me, she keeps coming back, the phrase really means that the judge is concerned that this, widow is going to come at him and start throwing punches so this widow her bold persistence finally pays off and the judge somewhat saves his honor by making the situation right what these two characters show in these parables is uh, well the Hebrew word is Chutzpah. Say that with me. Chutzpah. Again, chutzpah. It's headstrong persistence, brazen tenacity, bold determination, raw nerve. Undying just keeps coming back. Again, in in these two stories, both characters are powerless, but both have chutzpah. And this is how Jesus defines faith. This is a common theme in many stories of the Bible. We saw it in Abraham, right, with Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about Moses with the golden calf. God says, I'm done with this. I'm going to wipe out these people. What does Moses do? He steps up and says, you're not going to do this. You're not going to do this. You're not going to embarrass your own name by wiping these people out. You can blot me out of the book before you destroy them. Think about Elijah we mentioned in the Baals, running ahead of the chariots. You know, he runs up and down the mountain multiple times in a day. Think about what we, we talked about with the Syrophoenician woman. You remember this? The Syrophoenician woman says, You know, heal my daughter. She's sick. Again, this is a Gentile. And Jesus, or the apostles say, Can we get her to be quiet? Like, this is driving us crazy. And Jesus says, eh, You know, yeah, please. And then she keeps coming back and she keeps shouting. She keeps shouting. And Jesus says, look, you don't feed dog food to children. And she says, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs. And what is Jesus' response? I haven't seen faith. I haven't seen chutzpah like this even among my own people. Her chutzpah saved her. Or think about Jesus teaching at someone's home. The place is packed out. It's crowded and these guys have a paralyzed friend, and they say, and one of the guys, I guess, has this idea like, hey, we could put him, put him through the roof maybe because we're not going to get him through the crowds. One of his friends says, well, whose house is that? I don't know, but we're going through the roof. Come on, you know, like what, what a conversation. So they lower a guy through the roof, and Jesus heals him and compliments him for their faith. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. This happens all throughout the Bible. This is how faith is defined, as chutzpah. And a lot of the rabbis held uh, the trait of chutzpah in high regard uh, from people. In these stories, Jesus shows what God is not like to show what God is like. God is not a bad neighbor. God is not an unjust judge. Instead, God is a generous and kind neighbor among us with plenty to give and a willingness to give. God is, an un, is a righteous judge ruling over us, eager to dole out mercy and fairness to even the most vulnerable and powerless among us. I've got a similar uh, I've got a similar story of chutzpah in my own life. So I was with, um, I was with a friend in Memphis, and we were walking, we were walking down the street. We were not 10 feet off of Beale. It was a different street. And we're, so we're going to a barbecue restaurant, and this homeless guy steps up to talk to us and kind of points us in the direction of where this restaurant is. So we talked to him. And I said, okay, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And he says, man, of course, is there anything you can do to help me out? You know, a few bucks would be great. So I, this is literally what happened. I got out of my wallet and like the first dollar bill, it was like a five. And then behind that was a 20. And so I started to grab the five and bent the dollar down to do it. And he sees the 20 behind it and he goes, I'll take the 20. And I was just, and I was like, Okay, well, here's 20, you know, (laughs) and I walked away just being like, well, I mean, so, okay, so what? And I was like, that's, that's it. That's what Jesus is talking about right here. That's chutzpah. How many of us settle for the five when we, when, when there's $20 to have?
2: for some
0: food and he said you know what I'm going to lunch why don't you join me and she said well where are you going and he said that restaurant she said, I don't want to eat there <laughs> <laughs> yeah wow yeah. boldness right yeah so I, I guess what I'm saying is Abraham is the picture of faith for the Jewish people not, not Noah's silence In Judaism, a central theme, a central pillar of the Jewish faith is actually that obedience is not the most important thing. Instead, it's a desire for a passionate relationship with God, even if it requires some conflict and some disagreement in between. It's not a lack of humility to have chutzpah. In fact, having chutzpah is a signal of and the expression of humility. I'm powerless. I have nothing. Please help me. Provide for me. And I'm afraid even in my own life. I mean, I teach. What I love about this teaching is that I think we think of faith differently than this. We've grown up hearing faith is different than this. We've grown up with more that faith is a checklist of things you've got to do and you've got to align with and have some hope that it works out. Instead of God saying, you can approach my throne boldly and tell me what you want. God is a provider. Yes?
2: And what you're saying is so kind it's not what we practice in church life. Because we see faith as something that is pious. Mm -hmm. And if it happens, it's all a matter of attitude. And attitude is what we're trying to show at its most highest moment. Well, sorry your house fell, but good things happen to those who trust the Lord. And it's so contradictory to wrestle with God and what's going on that this happens and how does this work in a way that I can live with because I can't live with what just happened. Mm
0: -hmm. Right.
2: And and I mean, it's so contradictory. It's like, boy, did you show that at church? I don't know, know. Yeah,
0: and Jesus ends the parable of the unjust judge with this line, when the son of man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? If he came in this room, would he find chutzpah passion in this room? The early church, how did they define faith? They defined it as chutzpah. Paul says, I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I've been flogged. I've been made fun of. I've been misunderstood but it keeps coming back. That's chutzpah. Jesus defines faith, as we saw in these parables, as chutzpah Jews, as Abraham shows us, define faith as chutzpah. I want to tell one other quick snapshot of it, maybe the strongest there is, and then I'd love to hear further thoughts and comments. I think the strongest story of chutzpah we have in the Bible is when Jesus he knows what he came to earth for. He knew ultimately, along the way at least, he figured out, I must die on the cross to save the nation of Israel and all of the Gentiles. He knew he'd have to do that. And yet, we see a story near the end of his life where he's in the garden, and he tells a few of his disciples, wait here, I'm going to go pray. And what does he do? He says, God, I know what I'm supposed to do, but if there's another way, let's do it. And God says, no. He comes back to the disciples, says, where is your chutzpah? What are you doing? Wake up. And he goes and prays again with God. Is there another way to do this? God says, no. He goes back to the disciples. Where's your faith? Wake up. And he prays a third time. God, is there a different way to do this? Let's not do it this way. And he still hears no. Jesus, I mean, there's not a greater picture of bold tenacity and raw nerve than Jesus praying that prayer at that time. So we can, we can approach God the same way. Abraham got a no. Jesus in that moment heard no. But you still persist. You still go back. And you do it with humility. Yes. Yes.
1: Process a new thought here with this chutzpah thing. I feel like the people who were showing the chutzpah um, and showing their faith weren't asking for it for themselves. Am I right? So the guy that went to the neighbor and said, You got to give me some bread because these people showed up at my house and I've got to be able to serve them something. Mm -hmm. The woman that went to the judge. Help me with this one. I don't remember all the details. Mm-hmm. Was she not demanding something for her family, for her children, per se, or something?
0: It, it, it could have been. That's a, that, that's a little open-ended. It appears that she... It
1: for yourself. In my mind, some, demanding it for yourself is something different. This is what I'm trying to think out loud about. Like the homeless guy. He's demanding it for himself. If there's something different about it in my mind than these other people who are demanding it... To take care of other mm-hmm. people per
0: se. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. Well, I, I
4: don't know because to the Jews, one of the greatest pictures is Jacob wrestling God. Yes. And as daylight comes, Jacob realizes he is wrestling God, and he won't let him go. He says, "I won't let you go until you
0: bless, bless me. me." Yeah.
4: Which is, I mean, yeah. Well, if we were wrestling God, what well, we'd just go. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry, my bad. My bad. Right. <laughs> Didn't mean to do that, you know.
4: He's got him in a headlock essentially and says, No, I don't let you go until you bless me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean that's that same concept.
0: Yep. Uh, I got you.
4: Help me reconcile this with the parable of counting the cost before you start building a tower so you're not embarrassed for not finishing your day.
0: Yeah. Uh that's a good question. I think well there's a lot I mean, it takes it's a big cost, right, for Abraham to say, Save the city if we can find fifty. And he says, Okay, I'm coming back in dust and ashes. Can I speak again? What about forty five? It is I think the cost is I mean, hutzpah is a sign of losing yourself, in a sense. It's not it's not arrogance. It's uh this is God, I need you. I'm powerless.
1: It's not demanding, I guess, because then you get into the whole uh, demanding from God. That's what's that whole prosperity gospel? Mm-hmm. You owe, like, kind of, you owe me this, right? I mean, there's but Abraham's kind of, not saying
0: you owe me. He's just stepping up for towns that he doesn't, people he doesn't know.
1: I'm saying there's some kind of. Mm-hmm balance that I'm trying to say. You could take it too far and say, hey, you owe the, you owe me the, I demand this, you owe me this. Mm-hmm. That's not it. I, I know that that's not it. Right. I mean, that's chutzpah in my mind, but that's not what he's talking yeah. about. I, I, I think it's just a matter of, again, of, of attitude. You're asking, you're not demanding, but you're asking of your father who gives good gifts to his children. Mm-hmm. And you're asking him again and again, and, and he will, he will answer whatever way he, but the, the key was, Jesus, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I mean, it's, there's nothing, it's good to go to God and say, God, this is what I want, this is what I think, this is what I see, Father, help me understand and work your will in my life.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: That's still chutzpah to me. But uh-huh.
0: Chutzpah. Or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> <Hutzpah>. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're hawking up a loogie, but you're really saying a word. It's like the Jewish language.
2: Um of a a family example Um, Randy's dad Ernie Gill was converted in France as he was just an Air Force guy and um, so when he was sent back Randy was about four years old when they were sent back to the states and um, they were stationed on Long Island New York and there was no church Um, any closer than an hour away. So, Ernie wrote back to the man that brought him to faith, which was Maurice Hall, and said, um, Dear Maurice, there's no church here, what should I do? And so, Ernie um, received a (laughs) telegram from Maurice, and it said, Dear Ernie, start one. The chutzpah about that was that Ernie had no Education past high school, he was just an Air Force sergeant, and they literally acted in faith and started a church, and it still exists
0: on Long Island. Mm, that's awesome, right? It, it, this is what I, part partly too, what I'm trying to say about. I think this lesson is u- is unique in this way, is. It's, it is something you kind of figure out, but it is more something you try right like you this afternoon and again and again and when the answer is not what you want god can like god can handle it even if we're not right even if our motivation is not pure god can handle it he's a good he's a good father and a righteous judge you know so i i hope that in some sense with this that you think okay like this afternoon When I pray, I'm going to pray with chutzpah tomorrow, the next day. Like, you can do this, and you figure it out mostly by doing more than figuring it out so that you can do. Yes?
3: Just to to build on, I think, what Helen mentioned earlier, what what you said, is that uh, often if someone feels called by God to do something, um, it seems as if in our... Our culture, they're listening for the voice of God. And the minute something that crops up that's adverse or a disappointment or a challenge, oh my goodness, I guess God doesn't want me to do whatever. What your lesson brings into a different thought is try it again.
0: Yep. Do it again. Yep.
3: Don't give up.
0: Ask for the 20. (laughs) Yeah. Mm-hmm. Keep after it. That's what I think. It's
3: like anything with faith, there's there's balance. But I, I do think it's it's a it's an interesting message given often that you know we, we interpret adversity as the voice of God saying, pull back and stop. And that's not exactly probably what
0: he meant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is amazing. So when you read like when you read the story of Noah in contrast to Abraham it it's, it's amazing. We're supposed to be more like Abraham than Noah. God does not desire blind, unquestioning, robotic obedience. He, he desires real intimate relationship where he expresses himself, we express ourself. And through expressing ourself, we have a vision and a relationship with God that we probably didn't have before. Um, it's, it, it is amazing because once you see this, you can't unsee it. It is a, in a lot of places... In the Bible, in the Gospels, you see, Jesus never says, you have such great faith because you believe these seven things or you're right about these three things. He only says, you had the boldness to keep coming or to fight through the crowds and touch the corner of my cloak, like again and again.
4: Um, Stephen, faith is always attached to action. It's not, you know, I'm going to pray and pray and pray until this occurs, I'm gonna pray, and that gets back to the you know that balance of that verse we talks about, you know, the king's count, you know, before you build building, you know, because there's a dynamic balance between where faith and action are linked, and there's a dynamic balance between planning and <coughs> faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because if it's hundred percent planned you don't need any faith. You know, if you takes twelve block, you know, a thousand blocks to build my wall and I've got a thousand blocks. I have to build a wall. right? Uh, whereas there's a there's a constant balance, and that's what you see throughout the entire New and Old Testament, is this balance of I have to step out in faith.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I
4: mean, Abraham didn't live in Ur and just say, hey, uh, yeah, I have faith you'll take me to the right place and, and live there. He saddled up the donkeys and the camels, and off they went. Yep.
0: Yep. Um, all right. Pray with chutzpah this week. Live with chutzpah this week. Thank you, guys. Good plan. Thank you.